Welcome to the Coming Out of the Dark Bible Study with Pastor John. Tonight's study will be in the book of Deuteronomy. We invite you to join us at 514 Smithfield Avenue in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. This podcast is presented by The Way Ministries, supported by listeners like you. For donations, live videos, podcasts, and more, please visit www.thewayministriesri.org. Thank you and have a great day. All right, how's everybody doing tonight, all right? It's good to see everybody, as always. As we go through our busy week, right, get a chance to stop halfway point and get refueled again, right, plugged back in. So easy to get disconnected out there, huh? That's why we have to keep gathering so we stay plugged in. Boy, the, the world tries to grab us, you know, in the flesh, strong. All right, we're going to start tonight in Colossians chapter 4. She's got us in verse 2. We can we can start there. Not to say I'll stop there, but I mean <laughs> No, no, she's got a good I got one for us too tonight, so as we continue our study of Deuteronomy. Um Colossians chapter four will start in verse two. Apostle Paul talking to the citizens of Colossae. And he has an encouragement for prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. So what he's saying here, as we devote ourselves to prayer, we go there with an alert mind, sober-minded, and with a thankful heart. Before we even begin, that's how we go into our prayer. He's preparing us. Pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. When he says that, he's saying that because the devil always tries to cloud the minds of people that try to get the message out there. And he's saying as clearly as I should. And it's always the world and things try to get inflected into our minds where We get like scrambled eggs in our mind, and it's hard to get the message out there. Amen? And he had the same problem. And it says in verse 5, Live wisely among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive, so that you will have the right response for everyone. You see it? Let your conversation be gracious and attractive. The words that come out of your mouth so that you will have the right response for everyone. It's such an important thing is the way we deliver or how we talk to people, amen? And the tone, right, and our expression. So people will listen. It's always good when you talk to somebody to give them a compliment. When you start off a conversation with somebody with a compliment, They're very open to that first. And then you could start telling them about other things. It's always good to start off with a compliment. That's what Paul always did before he confronted his people. He always gave them a compliment. Then he said, but, I have this. There's some stuff here too, you know. (laughs) But, um, we'll stop there. I got one for us. Stay in Colossians. Go to chapter 2. 
We're going to go in verse um, 6. Freedom from rules and a new life in Christ. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. See, once we accept him, what do we do? We continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. So our roots and our lives are built on him, which is what? The rock, which is the word. Our lives are built on the word of God. Then your faith will go strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. See, that's what gives us overflow with thankfulness. When we stay rooted and grounded in the word of God. When that is always circulating in our minds, we could always be thankful and grateful. Amen? That's what has to be circulating in our mind. That's why we have to let our lives be built on the word. Now look what it says in verse 8. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So there's a lot of other spirituality out there, a lot of other things, but he's saying of this world rather than from Christ, rather than from the Word of God. For in Christ, or in the Word, lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, which is the cutting away of your sinful nature. Just imagine, he cut away our sinful nature. Now, think about when you're cutting something away from you, or you cut something off of you. It's not very pleasant. It's painful. He said the cutting away of your sin nature. So that's the problem. When, we, when God starts cutting away our sin nature, it's painful. Crucifixion is painful. He's cutting away the old self, the old man. And it's painful. <clears throat> Look what it says in verse 12. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. What he's saying was, you're, you're, dead, in, you're dead in sins and trespasses, You go into the ground and you come up again alive in Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead, now he's talking spiritual death here, because of your sins and because your sin nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. Do you see that? He forgave all our sins. Past, present, and future. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Every sin that you could commit or will ever commit is nailed to that cross and paid for in full. Amen? Never held against you again by God. We have to understand the way God sees each and every one of us He sees each and every one of us perfect and like he sees Jesus. We are completely washed in the blood of Christ. That's our position with God. You can't improve on that. When you believe in that, heaven is your home. He doesn't see your sins anymore. All he sees is his son in each and every one of us. Thank God for that. Now, the question is, we still see our sins less than we see his son. 
So what do we have to do? We have to crucify the old man and come up to new life in Christ and start seeing Jesus in us again. Again, and then that's what we we have to understand that my sins are paid for. They're no longer held against me. I should never want to hold them against myself anymore, or anybody else for that matter, or with God. The problem is we forget that. And we still hold our sins against each other and write ourselves and each other, and we have we heap condemnation and guilt on ourselves. Can I get any man for this? But Jesus, God doesn't see that anymore. It says it right here. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. <clears throat> so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Look at verse 18. He's telling us clearly, don't add anything to the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial, which is willpower, or the worship of angels, saying they have a vision about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You see it? You don't nourish it. God nourishes it. Now look what it says. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. The spiritual powers of this world are what? Demonic. Satan's power. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise, these outward things that we do, because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But here's the kicker. They provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. You can follow all that stuff with all your willpower and everything else. It does not change the desires in your heart. The only one that can do that is who? Christ, which is the word of God. Amen? That's why it says, don't go for that self-sufficient, self-help willpower crap. All we need is Christ. He is sufficient over everything. Amen? We have to add nothing to it. All we have to do is dive full into the word of God, and he will handle it, and he will change our desires over time. Amen? Nothing else will do that but God. He's the only one that can get in there and do it. Thank you, Jesus, for changing us. What does he change? He changes our thinking, our desires. So we desire the things of God and not the things of the world anymore. Look, if you still want something, if I say, here I am, I'm not going to do this anymore. You put it down, you make a law. I'm not going to drink that coffee anymore. And it's gonna, it gives you your willpower, tells you not to do it. But you still want it. You see, you're telling yourself you're not doing it, but you still want it. Eventually what's gonna happen is, you tell everybody you're not gonna do it, you're gonna do it in secret. You're gonna fail and do it. Now you're gonna be a sneaky sinner. And then you're gonna be even more condemned. Because now you told everybody you wasn't gonna do it, and you're still doing it behind the scene. Amen? You're becoming a hypocrite. 
Amen? So you can't change that. That's why the law gives sin its power. The more you think of not doing it, the more you want it. Instead of what? Forgetting that you don't even want that anymore. Changing the desire and putting it somewhere else. That's what he do. We have to change. That change our thinking and our desires. Amen? That's why willpower will never work. Oh, it might work for a season, but eventually it'll come back and bite us again and we'll be worse off than before. Amen. What we need is a change. A change of heart. And the only thing that can do that is Christ. Which is the word of God. Amen? <clears throat> That's awesome. Alright, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. <clears throat> Everybody with me so far? Uh -huh. It's been a long day and there's a lot of work at the shop. And uh, Like I said, one of my uh, comrades there passed away. And uh, things are just a little somber yeah. at the shop. And uh, everybody's not 100%, you know. But the car's still going to get done, and it's just something we have to deal with. So I just keep everybody in prayer. It's, it's not a good time when somebody, you know, passes away unexpectedly like that. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go out to fight your enemies, verse 1. Well, we're going to go out and fight our enemies, that's for sure. Every day you get up, you go out and fight an enemy. Satan. And you face horses and chariots and an army greater than your own. Do not be afraid. All he's saying is all these powers that you're going to go out and battle against are stronger than you. The powers of darkness are stronger than we are. That's why we need the power of light to overcome them. We can't overcome them. He says, do not be afraid though. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, which out of the world, is with you. The one who took us out of Adam and put us into Christ is always with us. Can I get an amen for this? And we're not always going to feel him, though. He is always with us. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. We have to understand that. Every time we get up and go out, it's a battlefield and it's a war. But we say right here, do not be afraid. The Bible says, and I don't know how many times, fear not. Fear not. When you go out and afraid, fear is a lack of faith. We are not living our life on faith. We're living our life on fear, on what we see, not what we know. In verse 1, just like the Israelites, we sometimes face overwhelming opposition, whether at school, at work, or even at home. We can feel outnumbered and helpless. God bolstered the Israelites' confidence by reminding them that he was always with them and that he already saved them from the potential danger. We already have the victory. We are already saved. We have to remember that when we go out there. The devil is not going to make us think that we're victorious. He's going to make us think that we're defeated. We have to understand we already have a victory. God is with us, and he's the one who's going to fight for us. Now it says in verse 2, When you prepare for battle, the priest must come forward to speak to the troops. So preparing for battle, what would that be right now? Right now you're here preparing for battle. And I'm the preacher preparing you for the battle. It's the same thing. They used to go to the priest, now you come to the pastor. And now we prepare for battle now. This is a spiritual battle now. Before it was physical, now it's spiritual. Same thing. We're the troops. We're in the boot camp right now. The priest must come forward and speak to the troops. 
He will say to them, listen to me, all you men of Israel. Do not be afraid as you go out and fight your enemies today. Do not lose heart or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is going with you. What did the, what did the priest do? He encourages the people to go out there. Don't worry, God is with you. Any good pastor or preacher wants to encourage you, look, God is never going to leave you nor forsake you. It's going to be okay. He's with you. That's why we need to come and gather. The troops need to gather to get the encouragement they need to fight the battle. Or else we'll live defeated lives out there. The Christians have to understand, connected to a church body is where the power is to prepare us for the battle. It hasn't changed. Now it says, don't lose heart or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is going with you. He will fight for you against your enemies and he will give you the victory. See it? In verse 4, he will fight for you. This promise affirms that God initiates wars, carries them out, and brings them to successful conclusion against his enemies. So we have to understand, when you go out there in a war, God's the one who sent us out there in the war. God's the one who did it all. He's the one that orchestrates it. He's the one that helps us. He's the one that gets rid of it. He's the one that decides the whole thing. He sets it all up. Now look what it says. The purpose of war initiated by God was to eradicate hopelessly unrepentant enemies and prevent them from contaminating his people. You see it? There's a lot, we've got a lot of unrepentant enemies out there. You know that, right? So we need to what? The devil, right? We have enemies out there all the time. What do we have to do? We have to come back, regroup, pray for them, but we don't what? Fall into their category and let them take us over. That's what they try to do. The enemy tries to infect us. We need to come. Look what it says. Purpose of war initiated by God was to eradicate hopelessly unrepentant enemies and prevent them from contaminating his people. That's why we don't let sin in the church. Sin is a contamination into the church. We don't let that enemy of sin into the church. All right, look at verse 5. Then the officers of the army must address the troops and say, Has anyone here just built a new house, but not yet dedicated it? If so, you may go home. You might be killed in the battle, and someone else would dedicate your house. Has anyone here just planted a vineyard, but not yet eaten any of its fruit? If so, you may go home. He's telling them, go home and enjoy what you your house. He's saying the ones that are already out in war will take care of it. But if you're new and you have a new family and a new vineyard, go and enjoy it first because you might get killed in the battle. <clears throat> That's why not everybody is ready for war. Okay? There's what? There's people on the front lines in the Christian walk. They fight for the other Christians to keep them going, right? And we protect them. We don't knock uh, weaker believers. We build them up. Amen? We fight for them. <clears throat> Same thing here. We do what they can't do. We fight for them, not against them. One thing about Christianity, Christians fight against each other. And that's what, what that's, uh, 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 any kind of nation divided by uh, civil war will crumble. That's why Christianity is so not, has no power. Because they all fight against each other instead of unifying. Can I get an amen for that? All right, I got this signal. Hold on. <laughs> all right. 
Better? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're on TV or whatever. You gotta be you gotta look you gotta look presentable here. All right. They might shut me off and say, Oh, he's got something on his face. I can't watch that. You know? <laughs> Believe me, people look at outside appearance more than the message. That's what carnality is. So you have to give them no, make no provision for the flesh and give them what they want so they can hear it. We got to fight for them because they're not there. All right, so let's just keep reading here. Verse 7 Has anyone here just become engaged to a woman but not yet married her? Well, you may go home and get married. You might die in the battle and someone else would marry her. Someone else would marry her in this situation. A man who died would be deprived of offspring to carry on the name, which was a great tragedy in ancient Israel. To carry on the name was the whole purpose. Verse 8. Then the officers will also say, Is anyone here afraid or worried? If you are, you may go home before you frighten anyone else. Really? If you got soldiers on the front line that's shaking and chattering, you scare the people that are bold. You start shaking them up. So no, stay home. Stay home. You're a little wimpy right now. We don't want to make more wimps. You're not ready. You're not ready for the front lines. You're going to go in the back. Go in the back. Go, you know, go, go in the desk. Go in to do some desk work. So. You're not ready to fight. <laughs> the Bible, you know, this was no joke here. What he said? You may go home before you frighten anyone else. When the officers have finished speaking to their troops, they will appoint the unit commanders. Verse 10. As you approach it, because not everybody's ready, not everybody's frontline material in the spiritual battle. Everybody has a different role to play. That's why we're not to knock anybody that's not prepared or, or wants to get involved with that because it's spiritual warfare is deep. And it's a high call. Not everybody's called to do it. We're called to protect people. All right. Verse 10. As you approach a town to attack it, you must first offer its people terms for peace. Well, listen, already. They're saying before they even attack it, they're offering peace before they do and destroy it. He's offering peace. Yeah. If they accept your terms and open the gates to you, then all the people inside will serve you in forced labor. Uh, in verse 11, forced labor, involuntary service was pressed upon prisoners of war and sometimes on the Israelites. Like it says in 1 Kings 5.13, 18, 9.15, 21, and 12.18. So they were prisoners of war. They became slaves. But they didn't kill them. But if they refused to make peace and prepare to fight, you must attack the town. When the Lord your God hands them the town over to you, use your swords to kill every man in the town. But you may keep for yourselves all the women, children, livestock, and other plunder. You may enjoy the plunder from your enemies that the Lord your God has given you. But these instructions apply only to distant towns, not to the towns of the nations in the land you will enter. Okay, in verse 15, places described as distant towns we're outside the boundaries of the promised land, okay? Um, the people in the land had already been placed under the ban, all right? So this instruction refers to those whom Israel would engage outside the land. Okay, amen for that. 
try to give you an understanding of what's going on, what's happening here, the context here. Everybody with me so far? All right. Let's keep going. Verse 16. In those towns that the Lord your God has given you as a special possession, destroy every living thing. Wow. You must completely destroy the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. All right? Completely destroy. (laughs) Oh, boy. The Hebrew term, right, here refers to the complete consecration of things or people to the Lord, either by destroying them or by giving them as an offering. The underlying rationale was to maintain the Lord's holiness in the face of pagan idolatry and moral corruption. Okay? As it tells us in Leviticus 27, 28, and 29. In verse 18, this will prevent the people of the the land from teaching you to imitate their detestable customs. You see it? If you, if they said if they kept them, if they let them stay in, it would infect them and they would end up turning like becoming like them. That's why you said you had to destroy them. Exactly. They they compromised, and that's what happened to them. They didn't get rid of them all. Now that's what he said. Now look at it says: imitate the detestable customs in the worship of their gods, <clears throat> which would cause you to sin deeply against the Lord your God. You see it? It would cause you to sin. That's why they had to get rid of them. That's why we don't want not make partnership with the world. Because it would make it would make us commit sin against God. We'd stop having idolatry. Anything could be an idol that you put in front of God. Anything. When you are attacking a town and the war drags on, you must not cut down the trees with your axes. <clears throat> you may eat the fruit, but do not cut down the trees. Are the trees your enemies? That you should attack them? Alright, in verse 19, do not cut down the trees. Ordinarily, trees might be cut down during a war so the enemy could not benefit from them. However, since the Israelites were occupying the enemy's foreign land, the trees could be of use for them. Because right? they were going to occupy the land, they could use the trees. That's why I said not to destroy them. <clears throat> you may only cut down, verse 20, the trees that you know are not valuable for food. Use them to make the equipment you need to attack the enemy town until it falls. This equipment consisted of the materials built up against the city wall as part of the effort to bring it under siege. All right, so we got through chapter two. Wow, we got through that pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. All right, I just wanted to reiterate a couple things. In verses 13 to 18, how can a merciful and just God order the destruction of an entire population? Okay? He did this to protect his people from idol worship. Okay, which was certain to bring ruin to Israel. In fact, because Israel did not completely destroy these evil people as God commanded, Israel was constantly oppressed by them and experienced greater bloodshed and destruction than if they had followed God's instructions in the first place. <clears throat> they never listened to God completely. Guess what? Neither do we. Neither do we. We don't listen to God completely, and what happens? We self-destruct. 
The Bible doesn't say anything. A Christian can self-destruct. We still have to be obedient to everything he says or beware of destroying one another. In Galatians chapter 5, remember? Don't use your freedom to, to serve your sin nature. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. But if always biting and devouring each other, beware of destroying each other. <clears throat> can it happen? Absolutely. It happens all the time. Okay, let me just say some. Archaeologists have uncovered the remnants, the remnants of many well-fortified cities in Canaan. Some had tall walls up to 30 feet high, ramparts, moats, and towers. Accustomed to fighting on the open plains, the Israelites were going to have to learn new battle strategies to conquer these massive fortresses. Men had big, huge walls. Remember yeah. <clears throat> the walls of Jericho and all that yeah. stuff? Did they have to knock them down? What did they do? They danced around it seven yeah. times and it fell. Yeah. That's what God told them to do. It's something completely supernatural. Yeah. That's how God works in our lives. Completely supernatural. That's why we can't figure out how God works. That's why when you try to figure out what he's doing in your life, you're wasting your time. Yeah. You can't figure out how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it, when the season's over, when it's going to start. Yeah. Just accept it. What he's doing, and just thank him that he's, he's trying to change you through it. Amen. Don't fight him. You don't want to fight against God. <clears throat> he's going to have his way. <laughs> have you not noticed? All right, let's let's tap into um, chapter 21. Is everybody with me so far? Yeah. you got 15 minutes. Wow, we went right into that, huh? <clears throat> went right to the point, right? Deuteronomy's got a lot of lot of lot of stuff in there that we could use. You know, I could stay in it for years, really. But we are we're already um almost three quarters in. And then we'll go back to uh somewhere else. They have something planned, but I'm not telling you what it's gonna be. How's that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For me to know, for you to find out. It's like a disclaimer. Things can change without notice. <laughs> the Holy Spirit speaks to me. Can change without notice. He says, "You go tell my people this. You go tell my people that." Okay, Lord. And he, nobody tells. You know, I can tell. He's not. They're not going to like it. Said, Thanks, Lord. <laughs> he said, "But you go tell them anyway." They didn't like the prophets, right? The prophets were telling them, judgment's coming, stop sinning, repent. No, you don't want to stop. All right, look at verse 21, Deuteronomy 21, verse 1. Cleansing for unsolved murder. When you are in the land the Lord your God has given you, someone may be found murdered in a field, and you don't know who committed the murder. All right, in contrast to the word translated murder in the Ten Commandments, the Hebrew verb here translated murdered literally pierced through. That's what it means. Indicates clear evidence that the death was not by natural causes. That's what murder means. It wasn't a natural death. In verse 2, in such a case, your elders and judges must measure the distance from the site of the crime to the nearby towns, okay? They see where, where it happened. When the nearest town has been determined, that town's elders must select from the herd a heifer 
that has never been trained or yoked to a plow. They must lead it down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted and that has a stream running through it. There in the valley, they must break the heifer's neck. Yeesh, right? All right, in verse 4, the stream would be an ever-flowing perennial brook located in an isolated area, free of contaminants. It was a pure brook spring. All right, in verse 5, then the Levitical priest must step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister before him and to pronounce blessing in the Lord's name. They are to decide all legal and criminal cases. The elders of the town must wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken. See all these ceremonial rituals that they had to do? Wash their hands. This ancient practice asserted innocence. Like in Matthew 27, 24, by it, the by it the community would declare that it was not responsible for a crime committed in its vicinity. Remember what's his name? Before when he was going to crucify Jesus, what did he say? I wash my hands of this. I see this man innocent. He actually knew that principle. Okay. Verse 7. Then they must say, Our hands did not shed this person's blood, nor did we see it happen. O Lord, forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Do not charge your people with the guilt of murdering an innocent person. Then they will be absolved of the guilt of this person's blood. All right, in verses 3 to 8, an avenger from the victim's family, okay, could not hold the whole community responsible, okay? That's what they could not hold them responsible because they never found out who did it. So they couldn't, they couldn't, that's why they measured the town and said, well, the people in that town is the one who did it. So they hold the whole town responsible. They could not do that. Following these instructions, verse 9, you will, you will do what is right in the Lord's sight. It will cleanse the guilt of murder from your community. Okay? The guilt of murder was usually removed through the death of the murderer. That's how it was, that was how it was before, right? An eye for an eye, right? In, in, in Numbers 35, 30, and 34. However, if the murderer was unknown, the guilt could still be removed by using this ritual. All right, marriage to a captive woman. Suppose you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God hands them over to you and you take some of them as captives. And suppose you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you are attracted to her and want to marry her. If this happens, you may take her to your home where she must shave her head and cut her nails. Okay. I don't know if I would still be attracted to her after that. <laughs> Maybe that's what the whole idea was, right? To shave her head and cut her nails demonstrated a captive woman's separation from her home and family. She was cutting off the past to join a new family and community. That's the reason why they did that. And change the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. She will stay in your home, but let her mourn for her father and mother for a full month. Then you may marry her, and you will be her husband, and she will be your wife. All right, in verse 13, to change the clothes she was wearing symbolically communicated taking on a new life and identifying with a new family. 
verse 14. See, there was a reason why they did everything back then. There were so many ceremonial things they did. But if you marry her and she does not please you, oh boy. <laughs> you must let her go free. You may not sell her <laughs> or treat her as a slave, for you have humiliated her. Hmm. In verse 14, humiliated her by first taking her prisoner and then divorcing her, a captive woman's husband devalued her. To protect her from further disgrace, the law prohibited him from selling her as a slave or from using her as one. Instead, she must be allowed to go free. So there was a lot of there was a lot of good, there was a lot of good principles. Look at verse fifteen. Rights for the firstborn. Suppose a man has two wives, like one's not enough. Really, I, I can't, you know. But he loves one and not the other, and both have given him sons. And suppose the firstborn son is the son of the wife he does not love. When the man divides his inheritance, he may not give the larger inheritance to his younger son, the son of the wife he loves, as if he were the firstborn son. He must recognize the rights of his oldest son, the son of the wife he does not love, by giving him a double portion. He is the first son of his father's virility, and the rights of the firstborn belong to him. Wow. Whether he loved he couldn't play favorites. All right, in verses 15 to 17, the law required that a firstborn son receive the greater share of his father's inheritance. Okay? The custom of giving the firstborn son a double portion is first record, recorded here, but it, is, it was implied in earlier practice in Genesis 25, 31, 34, chapter 27, 1 to 4, and chapter 48, 8 to 22. And son of his father's virility, the eldest male child carried this distinction because he proved that the man was capable of searing children and a boy in particular. Imagine that. Dealing with the rebellious son. Oh boy. Suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother, even though they discipline him. In such a case, the father and mother must take the son to the elders as they hold court at the town gate. The parents must say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Now, calling someone a glutton and a drunkard was probably a proverbial cliche, okay? Suggesting self-indulgence and laziness. Such a son was a good for nothing, who rebelled against his parents, and thus also against the community and divine authority, like it tells us in Proverbs 23, 20 to 21. Listen to this one. Then all the men of his town must stone him to death. In this way you will purge this evil from among you. And all Israel will hear about it and be afraid. Now, purge literally means burn. That's what it means. Purge means burn. It's in Deuteronomy 17. Various regulations. If someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and hung on a tree, 
or impaled on a pole, right? Similarly, in 21.23, hung on a tree or impaled on a pole. Similarly, in Deuteronomy 21.23, this was not the method of execution, at least in this text, okay? It was a shameful display of those put to death for capital offenses, probably to show the Lord's hatred of sin and to deter others who might commit such acts. See, we can see that also in Genesis 40.19, Joshua 10.26. 2 Samuel 4.12 and Esther 2.23 and 7.10. In verse 23, the body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day for anyone who is hung or is cursed in the sight of God. That, that, um, that's like goes back into Galatians 3.13. Cursed is everyone hung on a tree. In this way, you will prevent the defilement of the land the Lord your God has given you as your special possession. In verse 23, for anyone who is hung, Greek version reads, for everyone who is hung on a tree, which explains how this proverb applies to Jesus, right? Galatians 3, 13. Imagine that, we got through two chapters already. But let me just see if I want to reiterate on something. Okay. Before we close, let me just reiterate on this. In verse 21, Disobedient and rebellious children were to be brought before the elders of the city and stoned to death. Wow. This is no, there is no biblical or archaeological evidence that this punishment was ever carried out. But the point was that disobedience and rebellion were not to be tolerated in the home or allowed to continue unchecked. These principles must never be used to justify or overlook abuse or harsh treatment of children. While firm guidance may be needed with strong consequences for disobedient, the Bible does not condone physical, verbal, or emotional abuse to children. Amen? All right. We're out of time. Perfect. We've got through two chapters. We are going to close in prayer, and then we are going to sing a song. David, you want to come up and close us? We can bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for another opportunity to hear your word tonight, Lord God. We are so grateful for every single message you have given us, Lord God, as it constantly touches our hearts or finds us spiritually, so that we understand what you exactly mean in every single scripture that you have given us. Yes, Lord. I pray that we go out today and constantly use what we've been taught in the world that we constantly live in as we struggle to fight against the flesh and fight, fight against enemies that we cannot see with our own eyes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So I just pray that tonight you please protect all the families who are watching today and who are with us today in this ministry. In, this, in your son's name, I pray to you. Amen. Amen. Yeah, all right. Thanks, thanks David. David.